My name is Randy Ray. I'm the senior high youth minister here at Grace. I am your substitute teacher for the evening and excited to be that. How many of you have ever seen the show, even just flipping through the channels, you don't have to admit that you're an addict and you really like it? Uh, Fear Factor, out of curiosity. Everybody's seen it at some point. Huge show, incredible success. Why is it, and we can have a brief dialogue, why is it so successful besides, number one, it's a reality show. Have a reality show about anything right now, it's a success. And number two, it's gross. Besides that, why is it successful? Andy, why is it successful? Uh, we get to see people abused. <laughs> yes, the beauty of reality shows is live abuse. Anything else, any other reasons you may think it's so successful, because it is. We'll go with that. I think there's a subconscious reason. And I think it's this. The people who put the show together uh, were masterminds. Because fear is a universal issue. We all fear something. If we were to be quite honest this, this evening, we would all agree there's something that we fear. There's something that you fear. And it may not be the same as the person sitting next to you, but there's something that you fear to some extent. And I think partly we can trace that Back to Genesis 3, after the fall, one of the first emotions they experience is, is fear. They've, they've committed this great sin, and the first thing they do is run and grab some leaves and sew it together and cover themselves from the Lord. Do they hide from Him? On fear factor, individuals fail. They don't win $50,000 when they commit one fatal error. And that is they lack faith in a rope. Or they lack faith in a carabiner. Or they lack faith in some other form of device that they're supposed to place their trust in. Fear is therefore caused by a lack of faith in something we were intended to trust. Fear is when we lack faith in something we were intended to trust. Therefore, because all of us have experienced sin... All of us have been touched by the effects of the fall. We also fear elements of life because we too have failed to trust the thing we were supposed to find as our source of comfort. Where do we go for comfort then? Are we left hopeless? No. If sin is the cause of fear, then the only place for us to go to find comfort is to Christ and Christ alone. You may say, well, thanks. I'm really struggling with fear tonight, and my question is how? You've pointed me to Christ. How is Christ and Christ alone my comfort? For that answer, let's go to our text for tonight. It's in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Beginning in chapter, or verse 16. John 6, verse 16. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. When evening came, His disciples went down to the lake. They got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, 
And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Let's pray once again before we turn our focus to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do admit this evening that we are fallen and we are frail and we would be ignorant to think we could approach Your Word in our flesh and study it and learn it and apply it to our souls. We beg this evening for Your grace through Your Spirit. Lead us and guide us as we study. May we leave here knowing more about who You are And may your word transform us. May we view the world around us as you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Based on this text, I think there's three areas or three ways of comfort for the believer to place their faith in Christ amidst their fears. And the first is this, that Jesus is sovereign over our fears. Look again at verses 16 to 18 of chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. This text falls right on the heels in all four gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has fed the 5,000. They're sending the crowds away. Jesus sends his disciples into a boat and tells them to head off in the sea. And the question is why? If we were to stop and ponder this, why does Jesus not get in the boat and go with them? Why does he take the twelve, send them in a boat, and say, row? If we were to look back at that story, um, we would find our answer. In, in, in Mark and Matthew's account, they use the word Jesus compelled them to get into the boat. Jesus, with some degree of force, said, get into the boat. Reason being... The disciples weren't immune to the temptation of seeing Jesus become an earthly king. The end of the text preceding this, they feed the 5,000. And this mob, because it's Passover time, because it's a time of nationalistic zeal, says, that's our man. That's our king. Let's take him by force and make him king and get this military rebellion on the way. And Jesus, knowing the frailty of the disciples, puts him in a boat and sends him away. Because think about it for a minute to be a disciple in your flesh, if you see an uprising of 5,000 men who want to make Jesus king, the first thought you have to have is, you know, this could play out pretty well for me in the long run. Considering my relationship to Jesus, we would fare pretty well if they make him king. Jesus, knowing these thoughts, puts them in the boat, sends them out into the storm alone. We also read Jesus ascends to a mountain nearby where they were, actually where he had fed the 5,000 in Matthew, to pray. Jesus had a reason for being alone. He goes to spend time in silence and solitude with the Father. Let's reflect for a moment on why the disciples are in such turmoil at this point. Did they sin? Is this punishment? Is this a Jonah example? This is what happens when you disobey God. They're going to end up in the middle of a storm. No, absolutely not. They're finding their source of trouble in that they obeyed Christ. The disciples are in the midst of trouble because they were obedient to what the Lord commanded. They pointed their boat in the direction Jesus told them, and they began to row. Jesus is sovereign over this entire event. We, we really see the connection in its literary context why this follows the feeding of the 5,000. That was a test of their faith. They didn't do so well. Here comes another one right after it. 
This is another test of faith. This was an event designed to confirm their faith or lack thereof. How will they respond? They begin rowing. They end up in the middle of the lake where the cool air from the mountains would meet the warm air on this particular lake. And it was notorious for these type of violent storms. So here's the scenario. It's dark. They're in a boat. A large storm stirs up. They're in the middle of it. And they are presently without Christ, who is sovereign over this entire event. Their faith in what they had just witnessed him do with 5,000 men should have at least diminished their fears to some extent, shouldn't it? That was the whole point of the miracle for them. To place their trust in him and him alone as the object of their faith based on their past experiences with him. I had a similar illustration of this in life. In, a, in, a, in former days when I was in a fraternity, I won't tell you which one, we used to play a game with our pledge class. How many of you were in fraternities, by the way? Just out of curiosity. Good. We used to play a game called Stomp the Nail. Did you ever do that? All semester, or all week, we would have our pledges carry around a brick and a nail. And everywhere they go, they were to sharpen this nail and get it as sharp as they could. And we never told them why. We were like, it's just cool, sharpen your nail. So all week long, you would see guys walking around sharpening this nail, sharpening this nail. And finally the time came where they would be brought into a room. And and if you've been in a fraternity, you know what goes on. And we would blindfold the pledge. And we would tell them to put their nail on the floor. And we would have them stand beside the nail. And we would say, lift your leg. And they're blindfolded holding on to their big brother. And someone would say, as you'll notice, all what fraternities we were in have a little hole on their right foot. And to be one of us, you must now stomp the nail that you've been sharpening all semester or all week. And of course, as soon as they raised their leg, we would remove it and put a piece of aluminum foil about that big on the floor. And the point was, you've been with us for a whole semester. Do you trust us yet? We're sovereign over this whole event. We're in control of this whole event. Do you trust us? Do you think we would literally let you fall into harm? By the way, only one guy really ever did it. Jesus tested the face of the disciples as they encountered his sovereign hand over the events they were facing as well. Notice in this text, the longer Jesus waits to deliver, the worse the situation seems to get. The storm gets worse as the night goes on. Still he waits. Why? You ever been in that situation in life? It's a mess. It's a storm. And you're thinking, do you see what's going on? John Calvin says, quite possibly, that his hand might be all the more evident and appreciated when he does deliver. I think he's exactly right. What am I asking you to do? In the midst of your fears tonight, remember this. Jesus waits at times, but he's also sovereign over your fears. The storm can represent the chaos of life. For those of you listening uh, via tape, let me repeat that last statement. Wednesday night, our battery went dead in my microphone, so I am finishing this for you on um, Friday morning. The storm represents chaos and disorder, But it is Christ and Christ alone who created it, stills it, and ultimately controls the storm. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus is sovereign over your fears. 
Secondly, according to our text, we have comfort in our fears, knowing that Jesus sees our fears. Not only does He control the circumstances we face, but we remain visible to Him as we endure them. Look with me at Mark 6, verse 46. Mark 6:46 in his recording of this event after leaving them he went up to a mountainside to pray Jesus went up on a mountain overlooking the lake to pray against the temptations they faced as we've already stated possibly regarding worldly honor the Jews recognized Jesus as a prophet and now they want to crown him as their king but there's one office he has yet to fulfill between those two Christ must become a high priest and offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. He therefore goes to pray because his time is not yet at hand. Due to Jesus' elevation over the disciples, they were never out of his sight. The three or three and a half miles they were out on the lake. Jesus watches them struggling or straining at the oars against the wind and the waves for several hours. It's very interesting that they've never been out of His sight, though He has never been in theirs. No darkness could hide the disciples from the view of our Lord, and the same is true for us today. Knowing that He sees us should give us comfort in our fears, shouldn't it? My wife and I have a two-year-old daughter that's a walking illustration. I would love to follow her around uh, for a day with a pen and a notepad and record the things that she does. When we got to the sleeping stage, sleeping through the dark, uh, we crossed a parenting milestone. How were we to get our two-year-old to sleep through the dark, or actually a little younger than that at the time? She was terrified of the dark, and... I had an idea one night. I would stand in her doorway, visible to her, as she struggled to sleep. And we did this a couple of nights. And finally, a routine developed where uh, she would begin to fall asleep. I would stand in the doorway, um, and she would turn over several times and say, Hey, Dad, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm, I'm watching you fall asleep. She would say, Okay, turn around. Hey, Dad, what are you doing? I'm watching you fall asleep. She would turn around, and finally she would turn around and say, Dad, what are you doing? And I would say, Emily, I'm I'm watching you fall asleep. A few minutes later, she would roll over and look at me and say, Good night, Dad, and fall asleep. Why? She knew that I was there. She knew that I was watching her endure her fears, allowing her to never be out of my sight, and allowing her to find comfort amidst her terror and fall asleep. Knowing that we are never out of the sight of our Lord, what do we do amidst the storm of life when it gets rough and when we're waiting for Christ's intervention? For us too, though the night is fearfully dark, we must continue rowing against the wind and the waves. We must look for tests of faith and then pray for grace to respond obediently. We continue rowing knowing that He sees us and will deliver us in His good time. Though we don't 
fully comprehend why He allows us to struggle at the oars. At times, as we're battered against the ways of the storm, we know that He's always ministering and caring for us and will never abandon us as He continually intercedes as our High Priest. So again, in the midst of the fears that you're facing tonight, continue rowing knowing that the Master is always watching you, even as you're straining at the oars. Lastly, this evening we find comfort, thirdly, in that Jesus delivers us from our fears. Look with me once again. John chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But He said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The disciples are more terrified of a ghost than a storm at this point. Why are they so afraid? Even when they realize that it's Jesus approaching them. Some have said that this is really not what's literally going on in the text. Those who oppose the teachings of Scripture, they say that the disciples were near the bank and what they actually saw was Jesus walking parallel to them along the bank. Uh, which is hard to believe, even as we read the words, they were terrified. Who would be terrified of seeing Jesus walk alongside the bank? Why are the disciples so afraid as they see their Lord approaching them on the waves of the storm? I think the reason is because they suffer a lack of vision. They suffer from an inability to see the world around them as God does. Why? I think because of their forgetfulness. They have failed yet again to see the possibility of events they are facing as another test of their faith. Some have said it's quite possible um, that the twelve baskets left over from the preceding event, the feeding of the five thousand, were for the disciples. We think of baskets of bread, and and I remember growing up thinking of these huge laundry baskets, possibly full of bread, and and the commentators have said, no, no, it's more like a a sack or a small-sized purse that those in the day would carry their daily food literally around in. And so, this could have served as a timely reminder. They looked at the events that were facing them, thought it was a great impossibility, the Lord provides a miracle, and, and actually they, they walk away with a souvenir of sorts of what He has done. That's impossible for you to do, and they walk away, each of them carrying with them leftover bread for the miracle Jesus had performed. If that holds true, they're still carrying around sacks full of bread, but they've already forgotten its significance of divine power and grace in Jesus they had witnessed just a few hours before. And the amazing thing is, They've forgotten to remember God's faithfulness in their lives. And so do we. We both fail to remember God's faithful deliverance in the past during our present trials and fears, don't we? More amazingly than that, is that even the hardness of the disciples' hearts and ours at times cannot separate us from the love of of Christ. Nothing is more comforting to hear in the midst of their fears than this. It is I. 
Don't be afraid. It is I whom you love. Don't fear me or the storm that I have control over. Notice that when Jesus comes to deliver, it can seem to intensify our troubles, can it? So too is the case in our text. Jesus comes during the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., the last watch of the night, when the night is at its darkest, and calms their fears by identifying Himself and delivering them from the storm and putting their terror at ease. Only then does He come. In this circumstance, only then did He deliver. Deliverance had to come outside of themselves for their fear. I was watching a show on MTV the other night called True Life. I watch uh, a good amount of MTV a week with hopes of, of, of seeing what's going on in the lives of your students. MTV seems to set the bar or dictate where youth culture is heading. So if you want to keep up with it, you watch MTV. I was watching a show called True Life that focuses on true life of teenagers and things they wrestle with and things they struggle with. And this particular episode... Focus on fears, people with real fears. And one of those individuals was a woman who is afraid of cats. A woman who is terrified of cats, actually. <clears throat> so much to the point, it showed her going, walking to do her laundry, and she saw a cat on the sidewalk and turned around, went back home, and didn't leave her house the rest of the day. This poor woman's whole life was characterized by a fear of cats. So the solution... In the worldly minds of MTV, was to send her to a psychologist for three months. Um, a psychologist whose approach was to have her play with cats in hopes that at the end of three months, she would overcome her fears. So she did. They tried to get her to play with cats, and three months later, sure enough, um, she has the courage to pet a cat once and run away. The experiment was a grand failure. Three months later, she's still terrified of cats. Why? Because deliverance or comfort in our fears is not found in the fears themselves. We can't play with our fears and handle our fears and become comfortable with them. We must look outside of our fears to find deliverance from them. The beauty of this is it's the reality of the gospel Because of our sin, we must look outside of ourselves for a deliverer in order that we may be saved. Looking at ourselves and our sin, it's nothing but a continuation of our hopelessness. Our fears, likewise, can only be dispelled by looking in faith to our deliverer and having our hearts occupied with Him. Once the disciples do, they began to see things as God does. Look at the storm alone and your soul will become disappointed. Look to the Savior and you will be able to view your fears as He does. Remember tonight, His faithful deliverances in the past for faith regarding deliverance in the present and future. That's one of the beauties, I think, of keeping a journal if you do. It's very comforting when you're in the midst of a storm of life to look back at months or even years prior when the Lord has delivered over and over and over again. The disciples' hearts found a haven of rest because their thoughts became occupied not with the storm, 
but rather with its Master. Look not to the storms in your life that cause your fears, but rather to the author and finisher of your faith for both deliverance and comfort. As we close, I want you to see one other thing in this text. It really presents two pictures of life, doesn't it? If you're a stranger to the grace offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this text presented a great picture of life for you, didn't it? Dark, confusing, terrifying at times, lack of direction, storms, but ultimately without Christ. My question for you tonight is this, where is your hope resting amidst the storms of life? They're not going to get any better by playing with your fears, by playing in your sin, thinking you can grab a handle on it and make yourself your deliverer. You must come to Christ for deliverance from your sin and hope for your fears. The one who has received the gift of grace in their life, this text also offers a great picture of life as well, doesn't it? Though the nights can be fearfully dark at times, though the waves high, though the winds strong, we know that He remembers our frame and that we are but from the dust. We take comfort in knowing that we are always within the sway of His watchful eye, that He reigns sovereignly on high, that He always has and always will deliver us in His good time. Then they were willing to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Some have said this is a second miracle in the text. And as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, they're at the shore. And others say they are so preoccupied now with the thought of Christ that time seemed to fly by as they rode to their destination. Either way, take comfort in that tonight. If you've received His grace in your life, remember these three areas of comfort and strength for our faith that this text has presented for you. That Jesus is sovereign over our fears. That Jesus sees us endure our fears. And ultimately, that Jesus is the great deliverer from our fears. Take comfort tonight as we close in these words from Matthew Henry. Though the night may be dark... And the winds high, we may find comfort in this, that we shall be at the shore shortly. And in reality, we are now even nearer to it than we may think we are.